thinking about it earlier on, and Sam Buckle has a pretty good ring to it. You are lucky you're across the ocean <laughs> on the other side of the world, and I like you so much, Ryan. It's not like I said Samantha Buckle. Like, I mean, that would really get me smacked, wouldn't it? What our friends have suggested is Mick Buckle. No, no, I call you guys Which, that lovingly, but that doesn't work as a name. Yeah, I, I think I'll just stick with my name for now because it's mine and I've had it for 30 years and I'm kind of used to it now. Yeah, I, I, I hear that. Like, listen, you're you're preaching to the converted here because, I mean, you know, I am married to somebody who didn't change her name. So it's not like it obviously it's not like something that means something to me. And I've actually said to Lizzie, I was like, I would I would actually take her name if it went better with my own. But Ryan Ragone doesn't really work. Sounds like a really cool Italian restaurant. Something. Yeah. yeah like run by a Welshman. You know. <laughs> But I, I would take San, I, I would take Ryan McCosh, you know, like that, that that would be an easy transition for me. I'm not sure how Lindsay would feel about that, so Oh, I just meant in some sort of like parallel universe, you know, where where just you know, the whole geographic layout of our lives is rearranged. Well, Mick Neil and Mick Kosh have the same beginning, obviously, so it's not such a transition. I know, that's part of why I'm like, yeah, yeah I'd take that. <laughs> I think we should end this dis- theoretical discussion before either of us get in trouble. <laughs> well, <laughs> step away. <laughs> Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil, Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 144 of the Matinee Cast. It's a movie loving podcast on my movie loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. When I think about today's guest, I think about her appearance at uh, the Toronto International Film Festival just one year ago. But more specifically, I think about the the evening that she met me and I was driving her and and her lovely husband, who we just mentioned a moment ago, home. And I I noticed she had gotten a little quiet in the backseat of my car as I was driving them back to their temporary abode. And I said, are you okay back there? And she said, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just not used to hearing your voice in a way that I can interact and uh, that is certainly one of my favorite memories of meeting uh, a friend and, and listener of this show um, for the first time. And, you know, that that's going to be hard to top ever, really. Uh, we are across a very, very long wire to Sydney, Australia this evening slash this afternoon, if you are where my guest is, um, talking to the proprietor and, uh, and writer and host of an online universe, a site you can find at anonlineuniverse.com. Sam Akash is here. How are you? I'm well, Ryan, and I'm sad that I didn't get to see you in person and your voice in person, I guess, at TIFF this year. I mean, um, we, we wouldn't want to spoil you, you know? I, like, I, I'm, I'm told that I'm, I work best in doses. I haven't spent enough time with you to know if you'd irritate me yet over a large amount of time, but, you know. I'm pretty sure it's a safe <laughs> bet, but we'll go with that. Um, on episode 144, we're going to be talking about The Martian. We will be uh, flipping the record over to play the other side, but we will be doing sort of a truncated episode and uh, doing a shorter other side and leaving further down the spiral for this week. Uh, We'll get back to that in a few episodes. First, though, we need to learn more about our three-time guest. This is Know Your Enemy. As mentioned, Sam is a three-time guest. She first appeared on episode 90, where we learned that the first movie she saw in a theater was Beauty and the Beast. The last film she'd seen at the time was This is the End. 
The worst film she'd ever seen was Olympus Has Fallen. The unseen classic or essential was the Star Wars saga. She has since seen episodes four, five, and six, the original trilogy. Sam, did you ever catch up with the prequels? I don't know if I should. I've been told to leave it, but now with the... I don't know, with the new film coming out in December, like, am I going to be missing it? I don't know where this new film fits in the storyline. So. I, I know it happens after Return of the Jedi, so I don't really think you need a whole lot of the prequels. I could be completely wrong. Um, I, I, I think it, it's really going to lean more on the original trilogy. But, uh, hey, you know, if you're bored sometime, um, check out those prequels and kind of consider yourself warned. Um, and the film that she wished she'd made was the documentary Paradise Lost. Uh, her second appearance uh, on an episode that I did not mark down the number, but it was when we talked about Nightcrawler last fall. The film that she likes that nobody else does is The Skulls. The film that everybody else digs that she does not is Safety Not Guaranteed. The last film to make her cry happened twice in a short span. She cried at Big Hero 6 and then wept again at Interstellar. In the movie of her life, she's played by Adam Scott. And the movie she was watching next was Mr. Turner, which I really liked, by the way. Yeah, it was... I didn't love it, but it, yeah, his performance was incredible, and yeah. I thought the production design of it was amazing. Yeah, I, I like that one a lot. I've, I've been coming around to, to Mike Lee in my old age. Um, but on to round three, Sam. What is the film... You can interpret this question in any way you wish. What's the film that made your love of cinema turn a corner? This is really hard, because like. I can't really remember sort of in my teens or early university years which foreign film or which art house film kind of made me delve into that side of things. But I have a very clear memory of being about seven or eight and hiding behind the sofa while my parents watched The Candyman. (laughs) And I was terrified. I snuck back to my room and bawled my eyes out. I wouldn't sleep without the light off for about a month. That film taught me how powerful films really are because it made me more scared than I have ever been in my entire life. You know what the like the really messed up thing about that movie is the setting of it all like don't get me wrong the, the 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 boogeyman that comes out of the mirror if you keep saying the name and everything like that and the fact and like all those bugs and that kind of uh you know horror that kind of scariness is one thing but the way that it all sets itself in this very plausible part of chicago that's all really run down and uh, you know, it's kind of like in the projects of Chicago. That's the part of that movie that re- makes it really twisted. Like that bathroom where you, if you say the name into the mirror, the Candyman shows up. I swear I've seen that structure in several mm. parks around Toronto. I have blocked out most of that film because <laughs> of the trauma it caused me. So I have to say I don't remember the sort of things you're mentioning. But if I just think of it all that comes to mind is buzzing. Yeah. I can just hear buzzing in my ears and I'm starting to feel very uneasy. And maybe that's why I don't like bees and wasps. That would It's all do. making well, sense now. Not to mention the fact that where you live, the bees and wasps are the size of house cats. Oh, you don't need to worry about the bees and wasps. It's the snakes and spiders and other things that you Wasn't worry about. Wasn't it you that had a lizard pop out from behind your mirror? Yeah, there's my office is I work at a university and my office is like an old cottage okay. on the campus grounds and there's lizards that get into the cracks 
and there's some that live my I have a mirror behind my desk that backs onto a window and they get in the cracks and they sit between the mirror and the window and bake themselves. Uh, see, we don't yeah. have that problem here. Now, are are you into scary movies at all? Is that your beat or or like did Not, Candyman like scar you for good? Candyman didn't scar me for good, but Scream certainly did. Oh, yeah, which I watched at a slumber party when I was maybe 12 or 13. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, I only watch horror films if I feel like there's a really good reason for me to. So maybe two or three a year. Fair I'm enough. a bit chicken. Yeah. Fair enough. Miss McCosh, what was your first date movie? Now, I don't remember my very first date mem- movie, but I do remember my first date with a, a guy when I was in university and we went and saw Punch Drunk Love okay. at the cinema. And he thought he was seeing an Adam Sandler film. Oh no! He was just not that sort of Adam Sandler film. He was very confused, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I was a little confused. It was the first Paul Thomas Anderson film I ever saw, and I didn't really know what to expect. But I was confused in a wow, this is really cool, even though I don't completely get it. Way, and he was like, "Where the hell is man getting hit and ball with you know?" football right football yeah he yeah. expected that so, okay now and needless to say that didn't work out i was i was gonna say like was was that the thing where you got you you walked away at the end of the day like you went for a drink or you're on the walk home or whatever and you realize that you had two totally different reactions to the movie and it's like oh, i don't think this is gonna happen that wasn't the thing but it certainly was a it was a clue factor yeah i see okay <laughs> while i have you do you remember what your first movie was with buckle we actually met at the Sydney premiere of The Artist. Oh, wow. That's, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that's a good one for sure. And I mean, it was like 35 degrees, stinking hot. I swear the air conditioning wasn't working in the cinema. It was such an uncomfortable viewing experience. But the first movie we kind of went on a proper date together was, was Carnage. Polanski's Carnage. Oh, my God. You guys, you guys have an awesome story. I do love it. Uh, what, Sam, what's your sick day movie? Uh, Father of the Bride 1 and 2. The Steve Martin ones? Yes. Why those ones? I just love them. They're just like a warm hug. <laughs> you know, one of these things that I do every now and then when I'm feeling really either dumb or impish or whatever you want to call it is for no apparent reason I'll break into martin short's accent in that movie <laughs> can, can we have a example well i i love the way he says navi blue taxado you know <laughs> as, as, a, as a for instance you know i brought the wrong cooler thread uh it's it, it's such it's a pretty weird good <laughs> thank you it's, it's such a weird accent because sometimes he says yeah and sometimes he says yes so it's i i don't know what accent he's doing uh but i i dearly love that only Diane Keaton and the daughter understand what he's saying at all times, um, and and Frank, of course, uh, understands what he's saying. Or no, what's his, what's his little what's his manservant's name? Oh, I do Hans. Hans, yeah. Hans, yeah. Hans understands yeah. him at all times, and the mother and the daughter understand him. And Steve Martin's just there, like shaking his head. So are we half the time, but I love it. So yeah, sometimes I'll be like. Yeah, I'm going to the market. I'm going to bring out the grapefruit and uh, and I'll pick up some blueberries. You know, stuff like that. Just for no reason. Yeah. For absolutely no reason. This is the way my because brain it's works. 
delightful and stupid. <laughs> you know what? I think that could be the new tagline for my show. Thank you delightful and stupid. Delightful and stupid. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, sp- speaking of potentially delightful and stupid, Sam, what movie quote would be your epitaph? Dying is very difficult. It's from Ikiru. Oh, okay. Because I okay. just thought that would screw with people a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that would. Like that's that. Yeah, that's that's neither delightful nor stupid. Um, it's um, I I just saw Akito for the first time like two years ago. Somebody told mm. me to watch it uh, to make to make it like a January movie to make it like a, a New Year's resolution type movie, and mm-hmm. and lordy, were they like right on the mark? of of it being a a, a movie that's re- that works really really well when you have like endings and beginnings on your mind. Yeah, it definitely you know makes you reevaluate your priorities and it's a movie that yeah it does encourage you to sort of reset and rethink what you're doing. That's a good one. Shoot. I, people are going to be kind of hard pr- when I start getting more third timers onto this show. They're going to be hard pressed to uh, to top that one. So very well done. Uh, I was I was going to say well done for how late it is, but you know, that's just me. What the heck? Um, <laughs> well, there we go. That's more about Sam. We'll learn more about her when she inevitably shows up for a fourth time, but for now, we're going to charge ahead into the new slang for this episode. The new slang is the new film from Ridley Scott. It's The Martian coming up right after this. The Martian is directed by Ridley Scott. It's written by Drew Goddard, based on the book by Andy Weir. It stars Matt Damon, Jeff Daniels, Chiwetel Ejiofor, Kristen Wiig, Jessica Chastain, Mackenzie Davis, Kate Mara, Sean Bean, Donald Glover, and Sebastian Stan. It is about the Ares 3 mission to Mars, one that reaches mass failure when a sandstorm scrubs the mission and has NASA ordering an immediate evac. During the flea, one member of the Ares crew, Mark Watney, that's Matt Damon, is injured, lost, and presumed dead. Quick problem. Mark's not actually dead. By the time NASA, the crew, and the world figure all this out, he's a very long U-turn away. When we take a long, hard look at the Martian, we realize something about its structure that's a little bit odd. There's no villain. There's no stooge bureaucrat making NASA's life hell. There's no one rogue astronaut fighting feelings of dementia. The villain just seems to be time and distance. So, very simple pop quiz, Hotshot. Does that work? Granted, this isn't nearly a new formula, but do we, don't we need some sort of a heel in a film like this to make it a little bit more complicated and interesting? No. You don't need it. it. It completely works because there are stakes and the stakes are his life, the lives of the crew, and you care enough about these characters that you want them to survive and that's all that you need. Well, I'll, I'll grant you his life. I don't know in, you know in response to that, I don't know that I cared that much about the crew. I don't really felt like I got to know that crew all that much to give a crap like to use an absolutely capital T terrible example I cared about the crew of Armageddon more than I cared about this crew um, which is Armageddon is a bad movie do not get, mistake me at all but at the very least I felt like 
we spent so much time with that band of misfits that I knew something about most of them. Um, and, and it could also just be, you know, close to 20 years of hindsight and seeing it umpteen times. But I don't really feel like I got to know that much about Kate Mara or about Jessica Chastain or about Sebastian Stan in this movie to really give a crap if they were putting their lives in peril by going back to get Watney. Uh, Michael Pena's in this movie. I forgot him in my intro, but I, you know, I didn't really feel like I knew that much about Pena either. Um, but the one thing I do think that happens in lieu of a flesh and blood villain is the feeling of despair sort of seems to sub in in terms of a villain and that that Watney constantly has to fight against. Like he says in the late going that when you get into a situation like this, the fear is going to take over and you're going to have a moment where you think, well, now I'm screwed and you have to fight past that. So I think if we don't have a flesh and blood heel in a movie like this, we have to have what we see in this movie, which is the flight. You hear about the the feeling of fight or flight. You have to see somebody going through the feelings of flight. I think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's there's not a villain, but he's still battling something. Yeah. Now, we yeah, you and I actually haven't uh, you and I actually haven't really talked about this very much, but what did you think just in general terms of uh, of the Martian? Did it work for you? I feel like a broken record because every this is the third time I've been on your show and every time I've loved the film and I really love this film. <laughs> so I'm going to be the person that just loves every film. So that's why I loved it. I've seen it twice and wow. it still worked just as well for me the second time. It was just, I knew nothing going in and I know this is going to sound stupid, but I didn't even know it was about a guy who got stranded on Mars. So you, sorry, the you, title might, you know, suggest that. You should know that, but I I knew nothing, that, absolutely nothing. No, but that's you know what that that is that is a great way to approach a movie. Uh, I you know I I've been going through that this year with with the books that I read a lot of the time. Even The Martian, I I when I read the book that that this uh, movie was based on, and I promise I'm gonna not, I'm not gonna bring it back to the book too often uh, because I kind of hate when when that happens. Um, but when I read this book, I really knew. Not much except for a guy gets stranded on Mars. And that, and that was it. I didn't know how or why or anything about him. And, and that's been a lot of my experience with books this year. Just because I'm picking them up based on reputation or based on recommendation. And I'm not knowing them back. I'm not knowing these stories back and forth. And there's I've said it before. There's something really great to be said about that. About just sitting down and letting a story unfold sometimes. It was really refreshing, and I went in, like, no expectations, no nothing. All I knew it was a Matt Damon in space film, which actually describes a lot of films. But <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I knew nothing, and I was just from the get-go, and I'm like, oh, wow, okay. So, you know, the film opens with the, the disaster that leaves him there, and I was, like, shaken straight away. I'm like, whoa, how the heck is he going to get out of this? So I was in. It's from the get-go. It's, yeah, I really, really did love this film. 
Now, I was not quite as over the moon as you were. I liked it a lot. I certainly enjoyed the heck out of Matt Damon in this movie. I am a big fan of Ridley Scott. We'll talk about him in a while. Um, So, you know, I was already primed to like this movie. And as I said, I had read this book, so I knew the kind of story that was coming. And on top of everything, I saw this in the middle of my film festival. So... It worked really, really well as a palate cleanser in the midst of all these uh, rather arty, rather indie type movies. Um, you know, I, I got this really solidly made studio offering that was not tremendously complicated, but was at the very least tremendously competent. And you don't get that out of studio films all that often. As a comparison, the the same the, like the same week that I saw this. I went and saw Black Mass, which was also playing at the festival, but I didn't, Lord knows, I didn't see it there. And it's not competent. It's not well executed, and it is a studio film. So it's like, okay, here's when Hollywood gets it right, and here's when Hollywood gets it wrong. So seeing a big-budget movie that, that does this well is is really, really a treat sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's it's extremely well-made popcorn movie and i mean that as a compliment because there's like you said there are so many studio popcorn whatever you want to call them films that are just by the book they're boring or they're just not made or you know there's faults all over the show this film was very competently made and i think that it's a great we're not going to talk about the book too much but i just read finished reading the book this morning and it's i think it's an incredible adaptation as well did you did you finish it as quick as I did? I finished that one in like three days. That's about the average for me for a book. I tend to eat them up, and I just wanted to get through this. And I was just so surprised with how many of the really great zingers in the film are actually lifted directly yeah. from the book. That yeah. surprised me. I expected more of that to be Goddard, uh, who's the screenwriter. But, yeah, it was amazing. And the stuff that he put in, it felt like something that the character would have said. Yeah, I I noticed that, too. There was a lot of little flourishes and scenes and and whatnot that Goddard had obviously added. Like the the whole flourish of when um, when, when they start calling it... uh, Oh, what's the Lord of the Rings reference? They call it Project Elrond. Project Elrond, yeah. yeah. And and then just to just to make it a little bit more self aware, it's uh, it's Sean Bean that says because it's a secret meeting, and my whole audience just cracked up. That was a nice little film yeah, you know. So stuff stuff like that obviously was his was his sort of flourish. But yeah, a lot of the way that Watney talks, uh, a lot of the way that Watney speaks is a direct pull from the book. But I want to get back to something you said earlier because you mentioned the stakes in this movie and how they're really the heel. Um, this is going to sound strange, but for me, I wasn't really all that wrapped up in the stakes. I, I tend not on this show to digress to other films too often when I'm talking about a film just because I find that that's just a really deep rabbit hole to go down. But I'm gonna this time. Um, when I compare this movie to something like Gravity, as a for instance, I was genuinely wrapped up in Gravity in uh, in Ryan trying to get back to Earth because I, I felt you know like in my brain I knew 
she was going to make it because that would have been a horrible movie if it just had of spent 90 minutes with her and then sent her off to die. But I, still, my my movie-going self just got wrapped up in it and hung on to the, to the armrest of that chair for dear life as she was, like, hurtling towards home. In The Martian, I never... And, and this has nothing to do with the fact that I read the book because even in the book I felt the same way. I never really felt that he was truly, truly in peril. The stakes in this movie, I felt like the stakes were more on the Ares team uh, and on NASA in terms of trying to figure it out. So by the time they actually get to putting their plan into action, because it had been like checked and double-checked and they were going all ad hoc, I really wasn't wrapped up in just what was going to happen. And even he seemed to be at peace if he was going to die. So I don't know if maybe that's just... The difference between knowing the story first or not but i guess that would be my my big complaint about this movie is there never really felt to be a whole lot at stake i never really worried about watney i didn't necessarily worry about him but that's because he was so competent and i had no idea whether he would survive or not but he was a scientist. He knew his stuff and he had this very positive, I'm a problem solver. This is a problem. I'm going to see if I can figure it out. I didn't know what the end result would be, but so I still felt as invested in him as I did in Sandra Bullock's character in Gravity. The difference is Sandra Bullock's character is a novice and she's also in a far more catastrophic, like quick fire, everything's happening, seconds to react sort of film. It's very quick, where the, the Martians sit over a number of days, months. So he has time to plan and to experiment. So I had the same investment in both characters. I just think the films were very different. Yeah. So I felt tense in gravity where I didn't feel tense in the Martian but my emotional investment wasn't any less in and, his survival and I think maybe that's the difference is when you give me this kind of movie when you give me one person who's put in peril we're going to talk about another one later I want to feel tense I always want to feel like holy crap they might die the only time I really felt especially tense in this movie is towards the later stages where we see the effects of his rationing of the food every other step like because at that point he's like emaciated and you know we're, we're we've got the matt damon back from like courage under fire where he was just a kind of a shell of himself and every other step of the way i'm like this guy is going to be able to macgyver his way out of any situation i am not worried about him one lick even when things go sort of kind of wrong and just for one more return back to the book the book actually does put him in peril a few more times and including taking him out of contact with nasa and i thought that maybe maybe that was in my head as well i can't i can't really hang that on the movie um but where where do you come down on ridley scott because he's kind of a, a divisive director i know a lot of people who got on got off the scott train a long time ago um, and I know people who are who are driving that train. But where do you come down on him? Is he a guy who 
you think he's kind of lost it? You think that this is kind of a comeback for him? Has he just been making good movies the whole time? Where do you come down on, on Scott as a director? It's kind of patchy for me. Um, I hated The Counselor. <laughs> I, like, hated it with a passion. Most people um, I do. Didn't, I didn't see Exodus. Um, it looked awful. But I did quite like Prometheus. So, And a lot of people hated that film. It's it's patchy for me. I I like Black Hawk Down a lot. I like Gladiator. I like G.I. Jane. So I can't see as a director whose work I would be like, yes, Ridley Scott, I have to see this film. But, you know, I'm definitely not one of these sort of, you know, he's made a comeback or Ridley Scott haters or whatever you want to say. I think he's, you know, a patchy director. Yeah, it, it's, it's strange because... You know, I'm I still count myself a fan, but every once in a while he'll throw something at me that even I can't get behind. Like I I was kinda curious about Exodus, but I, I when I heard so much bad word coming back from it, I just couldn't get on board. I everything else I saw, like I saw Robin Hood, I saw Body of Lies. I love American Gangster. That's a film that I think is like really underrated, but at the same time, even I can't go to bat for something like a good year. I can't really get behind Russell Crowe learning about wine. Um, but at the same time, every few projects, he comes around and he hits with something like this or something like Gladiator or Black Hawk Down. And it's pretty impressive because this film has a really great, along with the fact that it's really well balanced and really well paced, um, it's a little over two hours, but I didn't feel a minute of that. The film looks fantastic. It's It's got an awful lot of visual effects going on, but it's done in such a way that everything looks really, really bright, really spacious. You actually really get an idea of his isolation on Mars because there's like nothing for like miles as far as the eye can see. And, and you can see quite a bit. So I think that's the thing, is that this is one of those movies where Scott, as a visual director, really kind of gets to get out and play, even when even when they're back on Earth and they're in like these big, bright NASA boardrooms and things like that. Yeah, I thought that Mars looked great, and they didn't overdo it with the special effects, and there weren't that many scenes where they had the opportunity to go crazy, so I think that helped as well, you know, we didn't have aliens running all over the place and other creatures and whatnot, so there was less of an opportunity to go a bit crazy, and I think that, yeah, I think it worked. Well, they didn't really use the 3D all that much, you know what I mean? Like, they used it mostly for his monitor, in terms of giving some depth to the text and making it look like you were sitting inside the computer looking out at him. But that was about it. They, they, they certainly didn't really use it for, for spatial awareness the rest of the way, at least not as far as I could tell. No, there were large patches where you didn't really know. I didn't even notice it was in 3D, but certainly um, one of the final scenes of the film, the 3D, was I thought was really effective and really kind of helped up this up to my level of anxiety 3d seems to do really well when we get into space i don't know what like maybe it's just because it's 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 vast amounts of like empty black that we're looking out into but when i think about movies that are set in space i think that really actually seems to suit 3d really well i think it's also because it's not a lot of um scenes where there's just two people talking 
Yeah. Which a lot of 3D films seem to be that. And it's yeah. just boring and doesn't work. That's true. Now, how did our how did our boy do as the guy doing the heavy lifting? Because we got you know we got a lot of these movies where it's one person who, you know, a movie we were gonna talk about that was, was cast away. So you got like Tom Hanks talking to a volleyball most of the movie. Matt Damon spends a lot of this movie just talking to us. He's talking to like the webcam on a computer. How like how did he work out for you? Were you like were you getting tired of Watney? Did you want more of Watney? How was he working out? I thought it was a really good balance between time with him and time with the other characters. Um, I really like the dry wit of this character and I thought Damon really nailed it. So I was very happy to spend time with him just talking at the screen, you know, recording his video diary. There was never a moment where that device kind of seemed to wear on you at all? No. No, because the dry, the dry humor, it's my, it's really my sort of humor. So it, it really is. So it just really worked for me. I can totally understand if, if it's not your sort of humor, it may have got a bit dull, but it, it worked really well for me. And I thought it was a really clever way of, of adapting these logs and, you know, and for the film. Uh, like where, where I really kind of got on board was when he started to digress into, Things like, you know, how much 70s TV he was watching and how much disco he was listening to and how crazy that was driving him. I, I, you know, things like the talking about how he was going to, in his words, science the shit out of his problems. That that was cool. But it was when he would kind of let his, when he would kind of actually let a little bit more Matt Damon into Watney, that was usually where I found it was working even better. Yeah, I, I did find those little digressions hilarious. And one of the earlier ones is when he takes the cross um, from Martinez's um, personal items to help start a fire. And he, you know, he's, he's cutting up a cross with Jesus on it and he's saying, going, you know, Jesus, I hope you are going to be okay with this. And you know, stuff like that, I thought was yeah, really, <laughs> really funny. Now, it's funny because outside of this film, it's been an interesting few weeks for – a few different things around this project when when you saw it either the first time or certainly when you came back to revisit it was any of matt damon's uh, uh comments and personality or something like that was any of that weighing on you at all because i think there might have been a worry that his his comments in publicly and some of the ways they were misconstrued because i don't think that he was necessarily always putting his foot in his mouth um might have hurt the way he w- he came across in this movie. Did that have any did any effects for you, or do you not give a care about such things? I have to say I I actually actively avoided reading about it um, because I I was on such a high from the film. Like it, it, I had one of those rare post-film highs where I was just like, I'm so happy right now. And then I saw Twitter doing its Twitter pile-on thing, and I'm like, oh, what has he said? And I'm like, you know what? I actually don't want to know right now. So I've avoided it completely. I'm with you. Unless somebody says something really, really terrible, I kind of feel like there's there's a great deal of difference between Twitter outrage and actual outrage. So – you know, you, people can hashtag the heck out of things like Damon Splaining all they want, uh, but I, I don't necessarily think that that's anything dumber than the average celebrity 
has done. I think that like if you if you put somebody, it's it's a little. Some of his things are a little dumb in the fact that he had a hand in how they got out. Um, and I'm thinking specifically of Project Greenlight, but it, not, nothing that Matt Damon has said or done in the last month is enough for me to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think he maybe just said some stupid things that he wished he could do over. Um, but it, it's, it wasn't enough to torpedo this kind of movie. The other thing, of course, for me is I don't really give a crap about celebrity culture. So a celebrity can say something stupid and I'll still just go see the movie because there's a lot of other people who worked to put the, that movie together. The other funny thing that I was going to ask you if it really affected your your take on this movie, especially since I know now that you saw it a second time, is did the fact that we now went and found water on Mars taint your, taint, taint your opinion of this movie now? It didn't, but didn't Ridley Scott say he knew about it? <laughs> did he? I, I swear I read somewhere he, he claims he knew about it, and I'm like, what? Why didn't you put that in the film then? <laughs> uh, I think that would have been too easy if he'd, he'd come across a water supply on his journey. Um, so I'm I'm kind of glad it wasn't in the film. But it was um, great marketing. Yeah, the guys no at the studio must be like, "Are you kidding me? They found water <laughs> this week, and our film is well." He just he needed universe. to drive that rover a little further. Yeah, that was the thing. Like the news came down just days before this movie opened. They, they must be thanking the Martian gods for this uh, <laughs> free marketing for their film. Um, was there anything else about this movie that jumped out about that, that jumped out for you, or certainly that jumped out like when you saw it a second time? There's a couple things I, I even though I love the film, there's a few things that I didn't like. Okay, um, I wasn't a big fan of Kristen Wiig's character, um, the PR. I guess representative for NASA. I felt she was kind of an odd choice for the role and she spent most of the time just pacing, looking annoyed, which I guess you probably would do if you're the PR rep in that situation. But I don't know. She felt a little out of place for me. Did you have any thoughts on her? I, I know where you're going with that. It's, it's, she felt, she felt a little out of place considering that everybody else around her seems to be just humming at a slightly higher level and and that she's the only person really worried about optics surrounded by a whole bunch of scientists i think that's the thing it it wasn't so much her as it was that character's place in everything does that make sense yeah, I get. I they're all worried about the survival and the mission, and she's worried about how everything looks to the public. Yeah. But so is Jeff Daniels' character Teddy, the NASA director. Right. He's but, also but quite te- worried about that. Yeah, but Teddy at least seems to understand the math and the science being presented yeah. before him. I sort of felt as though. I sort of felt as though that um, Kristen Wiig was just kind of along for the ride and she was the one who knew how to um, Annie is her character's name she was the one who knew how to phrase things for the media and and how to spin this to get the most amount of public support because that's actually a part of this movie that I felt could have been slightly better explored They, they tap on it now and then but they never really dig in too deeply just because they don't have the time but the public support for a mission like this would be crucial. 
because they're, yeah. they're you know they're spending so much money and so much resources to go get one person they they would have to get so much public support on their side so somebody like Annie would be crucial in that and saying here's how we phrase it and here's when we say it and here's you know we'll bring up this and this and this and not talk about this so that could almost be a whole movie unto itself yeah they they could have definitely explored it more and i think they did a little bit more in the earlier stages when they didn't know that he was alive and then when vincent um who was the Mars mission director, was trying to get the satellites, you know, and he was having to convince Teddy and he's, you know, trying to say, we need to get public support. We need to, we, you know, we can try and get a sixth mission out of this because there's already three quarters of the, the equipment for a mission on Mars. And he was, he was definitely thinking that way early on. Yeah. Uh, and you said there was something else that was a little bit off for you as well? Yeah, Jeff Daniels' character, um, which is um, the director of NASA, there was a f- couple of occasions, I think two or three, where he said, but surely this won't happen, or X won't happen, or what if X happens? And then the exact, exact. next scene, X yeah. happened. Yeah. I was like, really, guys? Could you not have put something else in between that? <laughs> it was just a little bit like, well, let's foreshadow this a little bit less clunkily. Yeah. yeah. That, that, that was, you know, it's, you know, every time it, it's what else can go wrong today? It's, it's, it was very much like Apollo 13 in that manner, except in Apollo 13, it all just kind of, they, they caught up with it rather than Teddy saying, well, at least we don't have to worry about this. And then two scenes later, they have to worry about that. Uh, I, I think the only thing for me that, that stuck out as a strange uh, inclusion was... The way that Donald Glover uh, shows up in his movie, he's playing this uh, NASA astronomer called Rich. And it wasn't that he shows up or that he comes in and he does his thing and then he goes. Because Donald Glover has like two scenes in this movie. Um, it's, it's kind of incredible that he just shows up for the two scenes and then goes. But what threw me was, do you, do you watch Community? Or did you, I should say, did you watch Community when it was on? No. No, okay. Donald Glover... I, I, the character really seems to be playing this um, demeanor of having a, some sort of Asperger's and not really having social skills and just being really, really remote and aloof. And there's a character on Community that always hung out with the Donald Glover character who was Asperger's and, and was aloof and socially awkward and that kind of thing. So when Donald Glover showed up and he was speaking in that manner – that was really, really throwing me off because to speak in community terms, it felt like Troy was showing up and doing his Abed impression. Um, whereas I just kind of wish that he would have played it straight. Yeah, I haven't seen Community, so obviously that yeah, didn't. That didn't me. phase you at all. <laughs> it's a good show, so I'd say certainly like its first two or three seasons, definitely check that out because he is really funny on it, and he was good. Like in this movie, his like the scene where he shows up and he has to give the NASA brass his idea of how the better i the better way of retrieving watney would work it works out great like he does this little like you know demonstration using staplers and pens and it's it's a really cute little scene i just wish he was playing it a little bit more normal um but obviously we both really really dig this movie and we could probably be talking about it till the cows come home 
Um, but we do wrap up our reviews here on the matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible that you would take away from this movie and keep if you could. Sam Akash, what would be your souvenir from The Martian? Uh, mine would be a Martian potato dipped in Vicodin. <laughs> I'd forgotten about that. Um, he what is it? He runs out of ketchup. Oh, the, that was actually the moment. Again, my crowd let out a aww. At one point, when he goes ran out of ketchup three days ago, everybody just felt for him so deeply. And so yeah, he starts dipping it in Vicodin. Um, I could I could only imagine. Um, as much as it's really not my brand at all. Uh, my souvenir would be the soundtrack of this movie, which is all 70s, like, disco classics. So there's Oh, it's the, so fun. Yeah, there, there's ABBA on this thing. There's 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 Miami Sound Machine is on this thing. There's, you know, there's some good ones thrown in there, like some David Bowie and that kind of thing as well. But it all just seems to, one, it seems to, it seems to lighten the mood. He really plays it up. Like, there's moments where he's kind of actually finally dancing along. And it just it makes for some really good memories, and it's it's a cool soundtrack. It works very much in the same vein as Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, I thought of that too. Yeah, yeah. but now I, I think we're done. I don't think we can go back to the AM hits of the seventies for a soundtrack anytime soon. Certainly not for a space film. Anyway. No, no, definitely not for a space film. Maybe for something else, but definitely not for a space film. Well, Sam, we rate here on the Matinee Cash on a scale of one to four stars. What do you give to Ridley Scott's The Martian? I'll give it four glittering popcorn entertainment stars of joy. (laughs) I'm I'm guessing what we're going to hear at year end when I get your clip in the year end matinee cast. Um, This didn't quite get there for me. It was really, really fun, really, really enjoyable. But I did want those stakes just a little bit higher. So this is a three for me. This is like a solid B for me. Uh, This is one where I would have like no reservations sending – uh, somebody to see it on a Friday night, but I just I wanted a little bit more from it. Um, so three for me, four for Sam. Maybe you're somewhere in the middle. Maybe you think we're both crazy. Maybe you think it's terrible. Um, if in which case, I don't really know what to tell you. Um, but let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter where I'm matinee underscore ca, or facebook.com slash dark matinee. We are going to combine two films into one other side segment right after this. So come on back and talk about some more movies uh, right after this. So it's a bit of a long weekend, not a bit of a long weekend, it is a long weekend here in Canada, so we didn't quite have time to give this episode the full treatment in terms of the other side and further down the spiral, so we're going to combine our um, assigned reading into one segment this uh, for this episode, and when I reached out to Sam and said, what movie do you think would pair up with... Um, what movie do you think would pair up with The Martian? She originally came back with one I alluded to back in the actual segment and mentioned uh, Castaway. But then just this afternoon, she said, actually, I think All is Lost would be a better selection. I said, well, let's go with that. Let's play some jazz this episode and roll with it. And um, All is Lost is a movie from 2013. It's directed by J.C. Chander and it stars only um, Robert Redford and nobody else. And um, what was it about All Is Lost that that reminded you of The Martian? I think it was the competence of his character. So with The Martian, um, 
Mark Watney is very good at his job. He's a good botanist. He's a good engineer. He's a good astronaut. You know, he's good at his job. And in All Is Lost, Robert Redford is clearly a seasoned sailor. He is a very good. He knows what to do in an emergency, and he goes through all the steps he can while most of the time keeping his cool. They kind of had a similar calm about them, but it was more just the competence, the fact that, okay, everything's going to hell, but I'm just going to go through the motions and try and fix it. And that's what, that was the connection to me. The funny thing between the two projects, and um, if you're playing along at home, take a drink. In the book, For the Martian, one of the first things Watney says to us is, well, I'm screwed, although he uses a different word for screwed. And in All is Lost, the first thing we hear Robert Redford's character say, who actually his character doesn't even have a name. He's just known as the man. He says, um, he, he declares all is lost. He says, you know, like, I'm sorry. I know this means little at this point, but I tried. I think you all agree that I tried. Um, be true, be kind, be strong, love and be right. Um, but I wasn't all is lost. And it's really sobering in movies like this to see characters say you know what i'm in really big trouble like that that gets back to the stakes thing that you were talking about when they declare the bleakness of the situation right off the top along with what you were saying with the competence it really throws you off because i think we're all kind of wired to be hopeful by nature so when somebody says there is no hope it's really, really arresting. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's it's a really tense way to start a film. You're like, wow. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, in All is Lost, like this is one where we don't pussyfoot around. This is a movie where it's a one-man army. There are no volleyballs. There is no webcam. There is no NASA planning back and, 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 and hanging on. Uh, do you... Do you like those movies? Do you find that we're have like kind of like doing too many of those where we're using devices for them to talk? In this movie, the man actually really doesn't have a whole lot to say. He's got like four lines, so it's mo- it's mostly just watching. Are you growing weary of these at all? No, because I I haven't found them repetitive in their setting yet. So perhaps if I saw. 10 films about sailors going missing I might get a bit wary but because it seems to jump around genre and setting a little bit I haven't grown wary yet and I don't think you could make too many films like All Is Lost without dialogue I can't imagine that is an easy film to get budget for (laughs) so hey there's a movie about a guy in the boat no there's no rescue crew there's no crew members it's just him no, he doesn't do a diary, he doesn't do anything. No, he doesn't talk to anyone. But there's like five lines of dialogue in the whole film. I mean, that must have been a very hard film to pitch. Young director on top of it, uh, you know, a, a very, very bleak story. That's the thing, too. It's not even like, you're right, there, there's no device. There's no him reflecting on his life and thinking back on A, B, C, and D. Like, thinking back on when his children were born or when he graduated school or anything like that while he goes through these long stretches on the boat. It's just him trying 
to survive. Like, you know, the, the one of the key scenes in this movie is he realizes he's not going to have hot water very much longer, so he goes inside and shaves. It's it's a really, really strange structure to hang a movie on, let alone a movie with a star like Robert Redford. I think it goes back to just our primal fear of death and maybe dying alone and and just needing to survive, and it strips away things like well, to go back to gravity which we spoke about before um i really hated how they felt the need to give sandra bullock's character this massive backstory of why she had to get back to earth the case with the martian and with all his losses we don't know really anything about these people and i really like that i like that the movie kind of trusts you enough that you're going to care without having to know everything about them you know another one of the things that i think about when i think about a movie like this is these to me feel like, especially a movie more like All Is Lost or a movie that, of course, people know that I love, 127 Hours. I really feel like these are movies that are designed for a cinema. I believe that if you're watching something like All Is Lost at home, I don't know if you experience it in a theater or if you watch it at home, I don't think it works as well. I think that there's far too many distractions and that you get far more removed from being in these moments of peril with these characters that these believe it or not you know like more so than your standard comic book action flick or, or your standard summertime blow them up i feel like these are movies that are actually really really meant to be seen in a theatrical environment yeah i agree and it's part of that like you say no distractions you're sitting in the dark the only thing you have in front of you is what these characters are going through so there's nowhere to escape unless you look at the floor yeah so <laughs> and you're right there and also the sound the sound, oh, the sound of this these sort incredible. of film the sound in this film just like the creaking of the boat and it's so important and that sound coming through the cinema speakers is better than what you're going to have at home and that makes such a big difference yeah now, when I thought about The Martian and I thought about the idea of a space rescue, I pointed you towards a very different film for my selection on the other side. I took you back to 2002 and said, go and watch Steven Soderbergh's remake of Solaris. And I got the impression when I nudged you towards it that you hadn't seen it before. I have seen it, but okay. I pretty much forgotten it <laughs> as I a lot think I you watched know it when it came out I was gonna say I I don't think you're alone I think a lot of people if they even saw this movie back in 2002 have forgotten damn near everything about it yes yeah, so thanks for that and thanks for giving me the great George Clooney butt action I totally forgot about that <laughs> he yeah, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of Clooney butt in this movie I I, I just rewatched it before uh, for this episode because I realized it had been a while since I'd seen it um like did it so so revisiting it now you know 13 years later did did anything really jump out from, besides George Clooney's butt did anything jump out for you uh, like in rewatching it versus uh you know just on its own or also versus The Martian I thought it was much more similar to a film like Moon oh, than sure. The Martian. Like it, I for me, it, I didn't really feel the connection with The Martian apart from the rescue, which you kind of mentioned. But yeah, it's it was really interesting. I totally forgot the storyline, and I forgot how sort of mental it was, how all in it in your head it got, and 
it was a really interesting experience watching it again. That's little bits came back to me, but I had no idea where it was going, and I was really surprised. I'd totally forgotten the ending, and so I was quite <laughs> shocked at the ending. <laughs> so I, I had a lot of fun with it, and I was. I, it was impeccably made, and I forgot how amazing the score is. Yeah, for this yeah. film, it's it's so wonderful. It's a it's a Cliff Martinez score, isn't it? If I'm remembering right. Yes, you're correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. See, this is another movie that I got to be honest. I I surprised this one got made. This is another studio film. Um, this one more so than The Martian. The Martian, at the very least, like I can understand how it was pitched and how it got funded and how a big studio decided, let's make an action film with some brains. Solaris is George Clooney at like the height of his fame, really using his muscle to make a really big, shiny, cerebral, sci- classic sci-fi movie. And... I think that was kind of why I, I nudged you towards it was I thought it's interesting that you got these two movies that both star a major, major actor and are both framed as we need to rescue people from space, which on paper, that's a terrifying proposition because it just seems so, so many things can go wrong. With that, like we we have enough problems sending people into space and bringing them back in one piece as it is, sending anybody to go get anybody else and retrieve them, even though Solaris is set in the future, just seems like you're setting yourself up for unnecessary loss. And there, but when you look at Solaris and the Martian, they're structured so differently. Whereas one is your classic. You know, let's be honest, Saving Private Ryan of sending the, the, the team in to rescue one person for the greater morale. The other one is far more heady and far more, okay, one person goes in there and they realize the situation. The situation is really, really strange and we don't know how anybody's going to get out of it. So I, I thought that it just made such an interesting comparison, the two movies. Yeah, they're very different. And yeah, I'm really glad that you picked it. Like, I'm... I only finished, I watched it over a few mornings before work and I only finished it today. So I haven't really got my head around it. <laughs> so if it sounds like I'm a bit <laughs> non-committal, no, um, no, I did really love it. I just, it's a bit of a mind melt and I much. feel like I need to go and read about it for a couple of weeks before I can talk about it with, with any great sort of confidence. But it's, I thought it was great and it's interesting and it was creepy. Like, oh yeah, I, it gave me the, the absolute chills and I didn't get creeped out during The Martian at all. You know, the tone of that film, even at its kind of most tense moments, is quite light. Yeah, this film is much more like, oh god, what's going to happen next? <laughs> well, and it's a, it's a lot of things too. Like, it, it's a sad movie. It's a sexy movie. It's a you know, there, there's times where it's a really really thoughtful movie. Um, I, I don't think I will ever, I, you know, like you, I'd forgotten a lot of things about this movie, but the one thing I will never, ever, ever in my life forget, because I think it's just, it's such a ridiculously simple image, but such an indelible one that it makes complete sense as to why it was used. I will never, ever in my life forget the sight of Natasha McElhorn sitting on a train holding a doorknob. 
Like she's she's bought a doorknob or she's acquired a doorknob and she's going back home and she's just holding it in her hands. She could put it in her pocket or she could put it in her bag, but because she's sitting there holding it in her hands, it catches our main character's attention. It catches our attention because when do you ever see somebody out in the world carrying a doorknob? And it's it ends up becoming just such an iconic shot. Yeah, it, it is a really interesting shot. And again, I'd totally forgotten and I was sort of, like you say, it grabs your attention straight away and I'm like, huh? Yeah. Who's this woman? What's she doing with the doorknob? Yeah. yeah where's she going? Get off the train and follow her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's a great shot. Yeah, so this is like, uh, the reason why I wanted to pair it up is this is more my brand of sci-fi like movies like this you mentioned moon earlier this year we talked about uh ex machina these are the kind of sci-fi movies that go in for the ones that really really blend the cerebral with the visceral you know because there are moments where you're really wondering how our characters are going to escape from solaris and how they're going to survive but at the same time i really want my mind messed with uh, in this way, because it's that's part of the great thing about going to the movies is to get your mind messed with in this way. Yeah, and I'm the same. Like I loved Ex Machina, and those sort of sci-fi films are usually the ones that work for me. And the sort of bigger popcorn ones generally don't as well. And that's why I was so utterly surprised yeah. at the end of The Martian when I was just like, "Oh, I love this film!" Like I just, <laughs> I, I. I have I just can't really explain why I love it so much but it just it just was the right film at the right time and it was so fun and refreshing and usually these sort of Solaris X Magna films are the ones that go for me too and so yeah, it was just I don't know it was really fun to like something different nice well, there's you know like we were saying about Solaris it's a film it's a really really handsome film I've said it before, it's the kind of film I could probably just like watch on mute as a screensaver because so many of the shots, even like, you know, forget about the shots of the planet itself, but man, those are really beautiful. Even just shots of Clooney walking in the rain. It's all these really, really muted browns and yellows. It's a really stunning, stunning film that's all shot so simply. It's very Soderbergh. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. He's, he's very careful with his palettes and the film's very consistent even when going between, you know, Earth and the apartment and the, the spaceship and whatever. The colors don't change an awful lot and they're, and they're very beautiful. So, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you on that one. Cool. Well, I'm glad I could reintroduce you to it and, um, you know, I'm glad we could have this awesome conversation about The Martian because that is episode 144 of the Matinee cast. Come on back. On October 21st, 2015, for episode 145, it's a special episode that we'll be doing in honor of that very special date, and if I have to tell you what happened on October 21st, 2015, then we just can't be friends. Sam is at anonlineuniverse.com. Anything coming up in the next uh, week or so that people can look forward to? Um, I'll have a review of Mistress America, Noah Bumbuck's new film going up in a couple days, which I um, had a lot of fun with. And we've also, yeah, we'll have some new stuff. We've got a few screenings lined up, but that will be the next review from me. Very cool. And if people want to follow you on Twitter, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm at Sam underscore Makosh. What happened to at Sakura? I don't know. I turned 30 and thought, I might just use my name. 
Uh, mm. I just thought, you know, I might use my name All for a change. Right, there we go. At it's Sam. a nice name. It to, is. To go it, right I, back in the loop to the, <laughs> to the beginning, beginning of the of show. The it all comes back around. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can find them on platforms like Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple's podcast app, and the iTunes Store. Everything gives you ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on The Martian, All is Lost, Solaris, or We Didn't Do It, but your own ideas for me to go further down the spiral, uh, you can leave them all in the comment section of the site. You can email ryan at thematinee.ca, Twitter where I'm matinee underscore ca, or facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Sam, any final thoughts before I let you go this evening slash this afternoon? just i hope you have fun with the martian and that's really enjoy it absolutely for sam i'm ryan we will see you at the matinee